Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The legislature has its eyes on adjournment by the end of the month and is moving quickly on bills. But some of those high-profile proposals may die quiet deaths without a hearing in the Senate. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Garth Taylor from the University of Idaho's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences joins me to discuss how the war in Ukraine is already affecting Idaho's ag industry. Then producer Ruth Brown sits down with Senator Peter Riggs to discuss the Behavioral Health Council's efforts to change Idaho's civil commitment procedures. But first, it's been a hectic week at the legislature. The House debated a bill to prohibit the distribution of obscene materials to children in public libraries, museums, and schools with penalties of a misdemeanor conviction. Opponents asked whether criminally charging librarians was the appropriate solution. For many years, um, I as a parent have been concerned about the obscene and pornographic materials that find their way into our um, school and public libraries. While I believe that this is happening um, inadvertently, the increasing frequency of exposure of our children to obscene and pornographic material in places that I as a parent um, consider safe um, and assume are free from these kinds of harmful materials is alarming. To just blanketly um, say that uh, we cannot have the, this information in, in our public libraries is a concern to me, not because I, I believe that we should have pornographic information and readily available, but folks, we have what's called the internet, and, and while I don't like it, our children are subjected to this every day. I would rather my six-year-old grandson start smoking cigarettes tomorrow than get a view of this stuff one time at the public library or anywhere else. Sanitize, to censor, for fear of being prosecuted, persecuted by groups that don't like certain content. That's not the America that I grew up in. That's not the world I want my children to grow up in, or our grandchildren. The bill passed the House in a 51 to 14 vote. But in a call with the Idaho Press Club on Wednesday, Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder said he didn't anticipate the bill would get a hearing in the Senate, which would effectively kill it for the year. And I do not see the chamber picking this one up. I don't see it getting a hearing in committee. Uh, I think it's very appropriately numbered. 666, uh, if you understand the symbolism of the number, uh, you know, I think it's mischief and uh, something that uh, doesn't need to happen. We asked uh, where'd they get the information, you know, where they, you know, they're saying this information is in our uh, libraries. Uh, so you ask them specifically, where did you get this information? And you never get a straight answer other than, it. well, we found it in Idaho. 
Also this week, the House debated a bill to prohibit gender-affirming medical treatment of transgender minors and make providing that treatment a felony. The changes would be added to an existing statute that prohibits ritual female genital mutilation. When asked about the bill during the call with the Idaho Press Club, Senator Winders said he wasn't sure if the Senate would hear that legislation either. The next day, Senate State Affairs Committee Chair Senator Patty Ann Lodge said she hadn't yet made up her mind, telling the Associated Press the stories she's heard have been heartbreaking. I don't think there's a uh, significant uh, drumbeat for it. Um, now I think there'll be some that will want to see it happen. Uh, for whatever their reason might be. Uh, if I were a betting person, I would give it pretty low odds of advancing. The Senate may also be the last stop for a number of elections bills, including two proposals from Senator Mary Souza on voter registration and ID, as well as absentee ballot delivery. Those died in Senate State Affairs on Friday morning. It was another big week for education. Early this week, the Joint Budget Committee set the $3.4 billion K-12 public schools budget, which includes $2.3 billion in state funds and another $1 billion in federal. That budget includes $46 million for early literacy programs, which districts could use for full-day kindergarten. On Thursday, the Senate passed the policy component of those literacy programs for school districts. Some senators supported the bill, though expressed concern with provisions in the legislation to send less money to schools with lower reading test scores. Others said it didn't make sense to reduce funding for schools that do well. This is based on the IRI that's given in the spring. And these are five-year-olds, six-year-olds, and seven-year-olds. This is a pretty high-stakes test if it means their district loses funding if they don't make it to the next level. The districts, under the current formula of how this works, the districts that are doing a really good job, as the good senator from eight mentioned, are losing funding because they've done a good job for their students in K through three and with the literacy intervention funds that they've received from the state, and then their funds drop the next year. The bill now heads to the House. While policymakers have been busy with Idaho issues, the situation in Ukraine is still on their minds. This week, Governor Brad Little declared March 10th Solidarity with Ukraine Day, and the legislature passed a concurrent memorial condemning the invasion of Ukraine. The House of Representatives passed a bill that would encourage the state employee retirement plan to dispose of any investments Idaho has in assets owned by the Russian government. That bill now goes to the Senate. On Thursday, U.S. Senator Jim Risch, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, called on the United States to arm Ukraine quickly. My goal here is simple. Enable the Ukrainian people to expel the Russians and defeat the savage and murderous Putin. Ukraine needs more. Uh, needs more Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, larger anti-aircraft systems, drones, and uh, ammunition of all calibers, communications gear, uh, pro, uh, protective equipment and airplanes. Lots more also are needed. I have an ammunition manufacturer in Idaho ready to send more. They need state sign-off. Later Thursday, the U.S. Senate approved a massive spending bill, including $13.6 billion in aid to Ukraine. 
And while Congress is moving to help Ukraine, the ripple effects from the invasion are affecting the global economy, including here in Idaho. And it's not just about those rising prices at the gas pump. On Wednesday, Garth Taylor from University of Idaho's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences joined me to explain the impact the war is already having on agriculture in Idaho and across the world. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's get right to it. How will the war in Ukraine affect Idaho agriculture? Last week, uh, Melissa, the, um, we hit a 50-year high in commodity prices on the futures market. It already affected us and the whole world. And it will continue to be just devastating on, uh, I mean, uh, your perspective, whether you're a farmer or a consumer of, of goods from Ukraine and Russia, it will continue to affect us very severely. So why is that? You know, I, Ukraine is what, 5,000 plus miles away. Why is a, a conflict as horrific as it is in Ukraine affecting Idaho ag? Well, uh, about uh, Russia and Ukraine combined are about 20, 30% of the, of the world's wheat mar uh, producers in the world. And their wheat goes to largely to the most devastated, impoverished, famished countries in the world. It's a far different market than Idaho's wheat where it goes to. They go to places like Yemen, Lebanon, Egypt, Libya, stricken with famine and very in desperate need of uh, a wheat where the where the world where their where their diets are largely bred. So so it's it sounds like it's ripple effects that are affecting the the market. With that in mind, are is is Idaho's wheat sector more affected than say potato or dairy? Uh, yes, it would be uh, on the on the prices side. But Idaho wheat is lar it is a far different market than the Ukrainian and uh, Russian wheat. It's a white wheat that goes to the Pacific Rim, your uh, Japan and Korea and Philippines, and it's a far different segment in the market. So they don't really compete very much. So how about the inputs for agriculture and how that affects producers? Are we seeing effects on, you know, obviously fuel, but how about fertilizer? Yes, fertilizer. Those countries there, Russia, like, I think produces uh, 13, 14, 15% of the world's fertilizers. And a lot of that is produced from natural gas. Your, uh, your nitrogen fertilizers. And, the, and for example, they produce uh, a, over a quarter of the fertilizer that's used by the EU. So, and that's ripples through the whole market in, in, in farming here in the United States. And uh, we've seen horrific run-ups because of natural gas prices, run-ups in fertilizer costs. And I, as you listen to farmers around, estimates of two or $300 increases in input costs per acre. It's really a delicate, precarious time for Idaho farmers. No, and we're coming out of another time of uncertainty for Idaho farmers and ag producers when you know, we're talking about the effects of the pandemic. Are those stresses on the supply chain alleviated yet or are we still seeing those effects? No. 
Melissa, we're, this situation is unfolding and it's going to get worse in my estimation. We're coming off a drought, supply chain, COVID, and now input prices. And the worst of all that affects farmers, most of all, is inflation. They can stand and they can cope with these drought and other types of things. But inflation is what killed farmers in the 80s. And it devastated them. They're in the, I, as I listen to farmers around the state, they're in the most precarious play, position that they have ever been in their lifetimes. And uh, they're looking at interest rates are going up and uh, supplies chain disruptions and export market disruptions. And they're trying to balance all of these things out with drought and all of these other uncertainties in their inputs and their output prices. Now, bottom line, how is this going to affect food prices for the average consumer in Idaho? Melissa, that um, food prices, that the old uh, the old saying that uh, there's less than six cents of wheat in a loaf of bread, that's true. And farmers have long complained about that. So if wheat prices go up 50%, well, there's nine cents. <laughs> it's not going to affect the price of bread in Idaho. What you're going to see is this ripple through other types of things into corn markets, into other feed prices. And even when you start messing with corn prices, then you mess with alfalfa prices, which are in a large part, some part determined by corn prices. And then that affects the dairy input prices, uh, uh, input costs for dairies. It all, it places a whole different dynamic for all of agriculture in the state of Idaho. You're, you're describing this intricate and delicate balance with livestock feed from corn being affected by inputs and that's affecting food prices down the, down the line. Uh, is there any good news out of this for either farmers or consumers? Well, farmers are, gonna, farmers are making more money. Now, whether that's gonna be balanced by costs or taken away by larger costs, that's yet to be seen and whether they can balance that with drought and stuff like that. But these are very good prices for farmers. In fact, Melissa, we've had some very good years for farmers the last few years. We're looking at record highs in cash receipts and last year and almost a record high in net farm income. I'm looking at a, in, on the cash receipts side, breaking record highs again in 2022. Now, whether the income is gonna be there I just don't know if that's that costs are going to eat up all of those revenues a lot. Because there, there's the money that's coming in, but then there's also the money that has to go out to pay for that extra exactly. cost of fertilizer and feed and everything. You know, is there any way to know how long things might be this unstable? Well, Melissa, right now we, it's immediate. Those ports out of the Ukraine have stopped shipping wheat right now. In fact, several, I heard news that several of the ships have been hit by rockets from the Russians. So all the exports to that wheat just not coming out. And, and right now in the Ukraine is when farmers, just like Idaho, they're deciding what to plant. The farmers are starting to get out the fertilizer. They have no fertilizer. They have no fuel, diesel to run tractors and everything like that. It's immediate and it could last at the destruction disruptions in the farmer's supply in Ukraine could last for years as they get fertilizer or seed or other types of inputs 
that they've got to buy and to produce this thing. It's going to be a catastrophe for a number of years. And I want to emphasize that it's going to happen in a lot of the field. It's not only Ukraine's economy, but it's going to happen in these very vulnerable countries, the uh, Syria and Lebanon. And those that's really who's going to be feeling the real crunch of all of this wheat loss of wheat for their people. We have about 30 seconds left. Very briefly, is there anything from the either the congressional or legislative side that can be done to address this or alleviate it? I do not think so. <laughs> this is something Putin go home. <laughs> we, you know, this is just not something we need for anything. And I just very little, I just have very little hope for a long, any kind of long or short-term solutions to these things. These disruptions are gonna really hurt all the way around the world for quite a number of years, Melissa. All right, Garth Taylor, University of Idaho, thank you so much for joining us this week. On Thursday, the House Health and Welfare Committee approved a Senate bill to clarify language around civil commitments and shift some funding responsibilities from the county to the state. The bill comes from the Idaho Behavioral Health Council to improve regulations around civil commitments for seriously mentally ill residents and work to make the process more humane. Later that day, Senator Peter Riggs joined producer Ruth Brown to discuss the legislation. Can you walk me through uh, what Senate Bill 1327 does? I saw on the Senate floor the other day, uh, you mentioned days like this make me proud to be a member of this body. Uh, what would Senate Bill 1327 do for Idahoans? Well, and I think but to, to tell how 1327 is gonna affect people, we first have to talk about what House Bill 316 was from last year, which was the with the Medicaid expansion into Idaho, there was going to be some overlap in what our indigent fund and catastrophic fund were doing for uh, people in Idaho that needed their support, that now a lot of those people were being transitioned to Medicaid. So there was a plan to eventually kind of phase out the indigent fund and the catastrophic fund, um, but uh, there was a lot of moving pieces and complexity, and we weren't quite sure how to deal with that. So um, I started working with people that had specific uh, ownership of parts of how this was gonna be affected uh, last year to kind of get parties together and understand how um, how this was gonna be done. And so we knew that there were going to be some additional pieces of legislation that we're gonna to need to patch some soft spots that we knew that uh, 316 uh, wasn't going to take care of. And that, that was part of what made me really proud about 1327 is that um, there was a lot of trust put in by different parties that didn't necessarily have reason to trust each other because this is just the political world and things go sideways. And so it wasn't uh, a, a lack of trust out of any sort of malicious intent, but just people get scared that they might not get what they need. Um, and so the, the courage that everyone showed of, of kind of walking this path together, uh, it was evident in 316 and now in 1327, coming back together with all of these, uh, these different groups, these stakeholders to say, let's make sure that we have people covered. And that was one of the big issues that, that developed was while we were looking at the way um, our hospitals and our people and the services were being handled, it became very clear that there was no real differentiation between uh, things you would go to a hospital for. So if you were treated for a broken bone or, or a sore throat, it's the same as 
uh, a, a psychotic episode, and, and any sort of uh, mental disorder that needed treatment. And as we all know, those are just very different things. So we, it became clear to us that we kind of needed to create some separation from traditional illness and injury versus mental issues that need to be handled. And the same goes with uh, you know more urban focused uh, hospitals and then rural uh, critical care access hospitals and saying we can't treat those the same either. So our, our normal system became kind of segmented, segmented in that way and so it became important for us to figure out how to uh, make sure that we were doing what we needed to do from our, our state obligation uh, to care for the people that needed uh, especially the involuntary mental holds. Uh, the the civil commits as they're called they um, they we've basically taken this a person and we've detained them uh, because they're having a mental uh, episode and they need to be uh, cared for and this is this is vastly different than somebody who just gets into an accident and so we had to kind of look at the the way we were doing things and we found we were we were deficient in some of those areas we can do better and that's a lot of what uh, 1327 does to help clean up that uh, those issues and make it uh, better for everyone that that is both uh, being treated and doing the treatment. Sure, the civil the civil commitments apply to folks that are uh, so acutely ill that perhaps they cannot make uh, their own medical decisions. Um, there is some uh, shift in financial responsibility with this legislation from the county to the state. Can you walk me through uh, what that'll mean for the county budgets? Absolutely. Um, the, the biggest part of the, the financial shift uh, away from the counties into the state was based around this idea that we are basically, from a statutory standpoint, we're saying that uh, somebody that gets placed on a commitment like that, they have to they're basically being held by the state to be assessed and you know what kind of treatment uh, they're going to undergo is uh, is something that gets determined there and that's where we said well if if we have the obligation from the state level to make sure that uh, our citizenry are cared for and protected and some of these some of this language is um, is kind of in the in the Idaho Constitution, saying that for the general welfare of the people, the state is responsible for these types of things, and so it started to become clear to us that this really shouldn't be a county financial obligation. Also, because the with the lack of funding from the indigent fund and the catastrophic fund going forward, we said this is this really will be needs to be the responsible the responsibility of the state. And that was part of the pieces of uh, trust that I alluded to earlier is that there the hospitals were going to be on the hook for all of these costs if we didn't uh, take care of uh, 1327 and get these things filled. And that's where the hospitals really stepped up to say, if, if this doesn't get fixed, we're going to be on the hook for a lot of these costs, which to some of the larger hospitals would be uh, frustrating, but not uh, you know dest destructive. But the, there are a lot of rural uh, critical care access hospitals that this would be this would close their doors, and so that's the the leap of faith that everybody took to get there. I think was was important, and so we from the state felt we needed to, to make sure we did the right thing of taking care of the funding back at the state level for these people that are on these uh, involuntary mental holds. Uh, this morning in House Health and Welfare Committee, Ross Edmonds with Division of Behavioral Health spoke, um, and he mentioned that um, another aspect of the bill is the post-commitment transport, uh, which 
he felt would um, bring back some of the humanity of it. Of course, when the county was doing post-commitment transport, those folks would often be uh, transported in a police vehicle in which they had to be shackled and handcuffed. Um, it's my understanding that now those folks, should the bill uh, pass, would be transported in uh, some sort of secure vehicle from the state rather than a police vehicle, is that correct? Yeah, it is, and that's, that, that's kind of the uh, inherent difficulty that comes with uh, with helping people with that are going through this type of situation when when somebody has um, a public uh, mental health episode a lot of times it leads to some sort of disturbance of the peace of uh, some sort of uh, other related crime and so the tendency has always been well that you get put in a police car then and so it goes the same with, okay, they're kind of in police custody even while at uh, a facility for assessment, treatment, et cetera. So if they're going to be moved somewhere else, then the police will continue that kind of chain of custody to take them to the next place. And this is, this is just kind of further um, showing with 1327 how we're changing the way that we're, we're seeing some of these issues and how we're dealing with them, knowing that when somebody goes through a, a situation like that, there's likely going to be some not necessarily legal but behavior that comes from it that's completely outside of their control. So we don't, let's not penalize them from a criminal standpoint, let's make sure that they get the help they need. And a lot of times the, you know, being um, handcuffed and put in a police car can exacerbate these situations, making recovery even harder, uh, therefore longer, costing more money and all of those things. So this is just part of that collaborative effort to say, let's make sure that, that we care for these people, we transport them in a humane way, making sure that, um, that they're not we're not putting undue burden on their already uh, fragile mental state. Great. I appreciate your time today. That bill now heads before the House floor for a debate, but until then, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Senator It was Senator my pleasure. Rice. We have much more online, including a rundown of notable legislative and statewide races in the upcoming May primary now that the filing period is closed. For that and more, check out Idaho Reports online at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. While you're there, make sure to check out this week's Idaho Reports podcast with legislative leaders giving their take on the session so far and what we can expect moving forward. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho, by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.